to the Parabola Podcast. I'm story editor Betsy Cornwell. This month, I'd like to share with you excerpts from the summer 2008 issue of Parabola, God, and I'll begin with editor Jeff Zaleski's introduction to the issue. Houston Smith calls it the God War in his contribution to this issue of Parabola, the bitter clash between belief and disbelief being fought today in the media, especially in best-selling books where the idea of God and the worth of religion have been put on trial. Passions run high on both sides, and at the same time, real war continues to rage among believers. It's estimated that nearly a billion people have died from religious conflicts throughout history, and not all long ago. The root of these disputes must lie in the reality that for we humans, as Charles Upton writes in this issue, God in his essence is ultimately unknowable. Approaching God, we are like the blind men feeling the elephant— Our understanding is incomplete and imperfect. So too is our response, turning easily to fear and hate. Nor can science help, despite the claims of the writer-scientists rebuked by Houston Smith. As Walter T. Stacey says here, to ask for a proof of the existence of God is on a par with asking for a proof of the existence of beauty. If God does not lie at the end of a telescope, neither does he lie at the end of any syllogism. How, then, are we wisely to approach God? In his opening essay, Rabbi David Cooper wrestles with this question from within the Jewish tradition. About ultimate reality, he writes, nothing about it can be differentiated. Nothing at all can be said or conceived about it. But he suggests one can come into more proper relationship with it. To do this, he recommends a way adopted by all traditions, sitting in silence. As we quiet the mind, he suggests, perhaps then we can recognize a mysterious connection between our own inner light and the light of higher consciousness. And perhaps then, too, we can listen more closely to conscience, that higher faculty, that, as G.I. Gurdjieff says within these pages, is the representative of God in any individual, that which tells him how or what God would do in any situation. Let's turn now to God in His Mercy, a letter to Father J. M. Perrin on May 15, 1942, by Simone Weil, with an introduction by Eric O. Springstead. During her lifetime, 1909-1943, Simone Weil was known, if at all, for her trenchant social and political criticism and her political activities. One of the first female graduates of the prestigious École Normale Supérieure, she was as likely to be found teaching workers or leading a strike of the unemployed as in front of a class of girls teaching philosophy in a French lycée. Left-wing intellectuals are not unusual, but Weil's concrete commitment was different. In 1934, for example, she took a leave of absence from her teaching position and worked in three different Paris factories. Despite having just finished a masterful critique of liberty and oppression, she wanted to come into direct contact with the object of her reflections. That is unusual among those who offer advice to workers. The outcome was unusual, too. Weil did not find what she expected, neither a sense of camaraderie among workers nor a stoic sense of dignity in submitting oneself to necessity. Instead, she found the phenomenon she came to label as affliction or malheur. 
This is the experience she refers to in this selection as leaving her in pieces, body, and soul. But it was also the beginning of an extraordinary religious journey whose outlines are given here. The context of this letter is this. In 1939, after fleeing Paris on the last train before the Nazis marched in, Weil traveled to Marseille, where she lived for the next three years. It was there that she met Father J. M. Perrin, to whom this letter is addressed. Weil had several conversations with him about spiritual matters, and he pressed her to think about baptism. Her family was Jewish and assimilated. This letter, often called her spiritual autobiography, and written after she left Marseille for New York, describes the course of her life and her reasons for refusing baptism. She was ultimately baptized on her deathbed. It is a remarkable letter. While Weil was not often given to writing about personal matters, she is open and frank here. As she tries to explain to Perrin her hesitations about baptism, she also gives the personal side to some of her most important ideas, which are hardly lacking in spiritual depth or seriousness. A key one comes near the beginning of this selection. She talks about having fallen into despair as an adolescent because she believed she would never be great. Despite her own extraordinary capabilities, she had reason to think this way because of the very visible successes of her older brother Andre, who was to become one of his generation's greatest mathematicians. The family expected intellectual success, and Andre certainly achieved it. Simone's talents were very different. How so is seen in her realization, astounding in one so young, that real genius does not rest in what most people think it does, but in desire and attention. These are the means of real genius, for they are faculties that give one an openness to a reality where one can be spoken to truly and without pretense. The spiritual fruit of this insight can be seen in what she later says. To implore a man is a desperate attempt to cause by sheer intensity one's own system of values to pass into the mind of the other person. To implore God is the reverse. It is an attempt to cause the divine values to pass into one's own soul. This is the germ of an entire approach to life, philosophy, and spirituality that is refreshing in its own time, but that also reaches into the deepest sources of the ancient world and into many different religions. It is what Weil would come to describe as attention, the ability to suspend our thought, leaving it detached, empty, and ready to be penetrated by the object. Our thought should be empty, waiting, not seeking anything, but ready to receive in its naked truth the object that is to penetrate it. Weil, however, did not ultimately root this idea of attention in her own experience. It was participation in God's own emptying of himself in the incarnation of the Word, in Jesus Christ. For while this divine kenosis was the heart of the cross and of the incarnation, and also the creation, she claimed that God did not create out of power and expansion, but by renunciation. Creation allowed something else to exist by God's withdrawing. But God did not go away. He put life into the world by his own sacrifice and life in it. While Christ was the historical reality of this idea, while also drew heavily on Plato. But she thought intimations of the idea went even further back, and that it was an idea shared by both East and West. It was an idea she thought that all the great spiritual traditions embraced. Indeed, this universality of grace was something she sought to persuade Father Perrin of in her conversations with him. After leaving Marseille, Weil spent some months in New York before making it to London to work for the Free French. 
Her literary output there was immense, and she brought together her social and religious concerns in several original essays and in the book The Need for Roots. She challenged the primacy of the concept of rights in social and moral philosophy, seeking to replace it with obligations. Often highly individualistic, she also came to see communities as necessary food for souls. But all this was secondary to her hope to be parachuted into occupied France as part of a daring plan she had for frontline nurses. It was not to be, as she died in London while suffering from tuberculosis and refusing to eat more than she thought that people in occupied France were getting. After her death, her enormous outpouring of philosophical and spiritual writings was discovered. Her complete works run to 15 volumes. Since then, she has been read continuously and admired by numerous great souls, such as T.S. Eliot, John XXIII, Paul VI, Iris Murdoch, Rowan Williams, and Albert Camus. Simone Weil. I may say that never at any moment in my life have I sought for God. For this reason, which is probably too subjective, I do not like this expression, and it strikes me as false. As soon as I reached adolescence, I saw the problem of God as a problem the data of which could not be obtained here below, and I decided that the only way of being sure not to reach a wrong solution, which seemed to me the greatest possible evil, was to leave it alone. So I left it alone. I neither affirmed nor denied anything. It seemed to me useless to solve the problem, for I thought that being in this world, our business was to adopt the best possible attitude with regard to the problems of this world, and that such an attitude did not depend upon the solution of the problem of God. At 14, I fell into one of those pits of bottomless despair that come with adolescence, and I seriously thought of dying because of the mediocrity of my natural faculties. I preferred to die rather than live without that truth. After months of inward darkness, I suddenly had the everlasting conviction that any human being, even though practically devoid of natural faculties, can penetrate to the kingdom of truth reserved for genius, if only he longs for truth and perpetually concentrates all his attention upon its attainment. He thus becomes a genius too, even though for lack of talent his genius cannot be visible from outside. Later on, when the strain of headaches caused the feeble faculties I possessed to be invaded by a paralysis, which I was quick to imagine is probably incurable, the same conviction led me to persevere for ten years in an effort of concentrated attention that was practically unsupported by any hope of results. Under the name of truth, I also included beauty, virtue, and every kind of goodness, so that for me it was a question of a conception of the relationship between grace and desire. The conviction that had come to me was that when one hungers for bread, one does not receive stones. But at that time, I had not read the gospel. Of course, I knew quite well that my conception of life was Christian. That is why it never occurred to me that I could enter the Christian community. I had the idea that I was born inside. But to add dogma to this conception of life without being forced to do so by indisputable evidence would have seemed to me like a lack of honesty. I should even have thought I was lacking in honesty had I considered the question of the truth of dogma as a problem for myself or even had I simply desired to reach a conclusion on this subject. I have an extremely severe standard for intellectual honesty, so severe that I never met anyone who did not seem to fall short of it in more than one respect, and I am always afraid of failing in it myself. Keeping away from dogma in this way, I was prevented by a sort of shame from going into churches, though all the same I like being in them. Nevertheless, I had three contacts with Catholicism that really counted. 
After my year in the factory, before going back to teaching, I had been taken by my parents to Portugal, and while there I left them to go alone to a little village. I was, as it were, in pieces, soul and body. That contact with affliction had killed my youth. Until then, I had not any experience of affliction, unless we count my own, which, as it was my own, seemed to me to have little importance, and which, moreover, was only a partial affliction, being biological and not social. I knew quite well that there was a great deal of affliction in the world. I was obsessed with the idea, but I had not had prolonged and first-hand experience of it. As I worked in the factory, indistinguishable to all eyes, including my own from the anonymous mass, the affliction of others entered into my flesh and my soul. Nothing separated me from it, for I had really forgotten my past, and I looked forward to no future, finding it difficult to imagine the possibility of surviving all the fatigue. What I went through there marked me in so lasting a manner that still today, when any human being, whoever he may be, and in whatever circumstances, speaks to me without brutality, I cannot help having the impression that there must be a mistake and that unfortunately the mistake will in all probability disappear. There I received forever the mark of a slave, like the branding of the red-hot iron the Romans put on the foreheads of their most despised slaves. Since then I have always regarded myself as a slave." In this state of mind, then, and in a wretched condition physically, I entered the little Portuguese village, which, alas, was very wretched, too, on the very day of the festival of its patron saint. I was alone. It was the evening, and there was a full moon over the sea. The wives of the fishermen were in procession, making a tour of all the ships, carrying candles and singing what must certainly be very ancient hymns of a heart-rending sadness. Nothing can give any idea of it. I have never heard anything so poignant, unless it were the song of the boatmen on the Volga. There the conviction was suddenly borne in upon me that Christianity is preeminently the religion of slaves, that slaves cannot help belonging to it, and I among others. In 1937, I had two marvelous days at Assisi. There, alone in the little 12th century Romanesque chapel of Santa Maria degli Angeli, in an incomparable marvel of purity where St. Francis often used to pray, something stronger than I was compelled me the, for the first time in my life to go down on my knees. In 1938, I spent ten days at Celestmas from Palm Sunday to Easter Tuesday, following all the liturgical services. I was suffering from splitting headaches. Each sound hurt me like a blow. By an extreme effort of concentration, I was able to rise above this wretched flesh, to leave it to suffer by itself, heaped up in a corner, and to find a pure and perfect joy in the unimaginable beauty of the chanting and the words. This experience enabled me by analogy to get a better understanding of the possibility of loving divine love in the midst of affliction. It goes without saying that in the course of these services, the thought of the passion of Christ entered into my being once and for all. There was a young English Catholic there from whom I gained my first idea of the supernatural power of the sacraments because of the truly angelic radiance with which he seemed to be clothed after going to communion. Chance, for I always prefer saying chance rather than providence, made of him a messenger to me. For he told me of the existence of those English poets of the 17th century who are named metaphysical. In reading them later on, I discovered the poem of which I read you what is unfortunately a very inadequate translation. It is called Love. I learned it by heart. 
Often at the culminating point of a violent headache, I make myself say it over, concentrating all my attention upon it and clinging with all my soul to the tenderness it enshrines. I used to think I was merely reciting it as a beautiful poem, but without my knowing it, the recitation had the virtue of a prayer. It was during one of these recitations that, as I told you, Christ himself came down and took possession of me. In my arguments about the insolubility of the problem of God, I had never foreseen the possibility of that, of a real contact, person to person here below, between a human being and God. I had vaguely heard tell of things of this kind, but I had never believed in them. In the Fioretti, the accounts of apparitions rather put me off, if anything, like the miracles in the gospel. Moreover, in this sudden possession of me by Christ, neither my senses nor my imagination had any part. I only felt in the midst of my suffering the presence of a love like that which one can read in the smile on a beloved face. I had never read any mystical works because I had never felt any call to read them. In reading as in other things, I have always striven to practice obedience. There is nothing more favorable to intellectual progress, for as far as possible I only read what I am hungry for at the moment when I have an appetite for it, and then I do not read, I eat. God in his mercy had prevented me from reading the mystics, so that it should be evident to me that I had not invented this absolutely unexpected contact. Yet I still half refused, not my love, but my intelligence. For it seemed to me certain, and I still think so today, that one can never wrestle enough with God if one does so out of pure regard for the truth. Christ likes us to prefer truth to him, because before being Christ, he is truth. If one turns aside from him to go toward the truth, one will not go far before falling into his arms. After this, I came to feel that Plato was a mystic, that all the Iliad is bathed in Christian light, and that Dionysus and Osiris are in a certain sense Christ himself, and my love was thereby redoubled. I never wondered whether Jesus was or was not the incarnation of God, but in fact I was incapable of thinking of him without thinking of him as God. In the spring of 1940, I read the Bhagavad Gita. Strange to say, it was in reading those marvelous words, words with such a Christian sound, put into the mouth of an incarnation of God, that I came to feel strongly that we owe an allegiance to religious truth, which is quite different from the admiration we accord to a beautiful poem. It is something far more categorical. During all this time of spiritual progress, I had never prayed. I was afraid of the power of suggestion that is in prayer, the very power for which Pascal recommends it. Pascal's method seemed to me one of the worst for attaining faith. Contact with you was not able to persuade me to pray. On the contrary, I thought the danger was all the greater, since I also had to beware the power of suggestion in my friendship with you. At the same time, I found it very difficult not to pray and not to tell you so. Moreover, I knew I could not tell you without completely misleading you about myself. At that time, I should not have been able to make you understand." Until last September, I had never once prayed in all my life, at least not in the literal sense of the word. I had never said any words to God, either out loud or mentally. I had never pronounced a liturgical prayer. I had occasionally recited the Salve Regina, but only as a beautiful poem. Last summer, doing Greek with tea, I went through the Our Father word for word in Greek. We promised each other to learn it by heart. I do not think he ever did so, but some weeks later, as I was turning over the pages of the gospel, I said to myself that since I had promised to do this thing and it was good, I ought to do it. I did it. The infinite sweetness of this Greek text so took hold of me that for several days I could not stop myself from saying it over all the time. 
A week afterward, I began the vine harvest. I recited the Our Father in Greek every day before work, and I repeated it very often in the vineyard. Since that time, I have made a practice of saying it once each morning with absolute attention. If during the recitation my attention wanders or goes to sleep in the minutest degree, I begin again until I have once succeeded in going through it with absolutely pure attention. Sometimes it comes about that I say it again out of sheer pleasure, but I only do it if I really feel the impulse. The effect of this practice is extraordinary and surprises me every time, for although I experience it each day, it exceeds my expectation at each repetition. At times, the very words tear my thoughts from my body and transport it to a place outside space where there is neither perspective nor points of view. The infinity of the ordinary expanses of perception is replaced by an infinity to the second or sometimes the third degree. At the same time, filling every part of this infinity of infinity, there is silence, a silence which is not an absence of sound, but which is the object of a positive sensation, more positive than that of sound. Noises, if there are any, only reach me after crossing this silence. Sometimes also, during this recitation or at other moments, Christ is present with me in person, but his presence is infinitely more real, more moving, more clear than on that first occasion when he took possession of me. I should never have been able to take it upon myself to tell you all this, had it not been for the fact that I am going away. And as I am going more or less with the idea of probable death, I do not believe that I have the right to keep it to myself. For after all, the whole of this matter is not a question concerning me, myself. It concerns God. I am really nothing in it at all. If one could imagine any possibility of error in God, I should think that it had all happened to me by mistake. But perhaps like God likes to use castaway objects, waste, rejects. After all, should the bread of the host be moldy, it would become the body of Christ just the same after the priest had consecrated it. Only it cannot refuse while we can disobey. It sometimes seems to me that when I am treated in so merciful a way, every sin on my part must be a mortal sin, and I am constantly committing them. I'm Betsy Cornwell, and this has been the Parabola Podcast. Thank you for listening.